Tonight is a very special night as we get to welcome Virgil, Kelsey, the family back to GBC. I know uh, it was right before, I think it was a Sunday before COVID, uh, all struck that you guys came at Dexter and shared an update of Redemption Church. And uh, I won't steal the thunder here, but uh, they've been now in existence as a church for a year. And I'm just excited for you to hear about what God's been doing. And I'm really grateful to you for being willing to come in and just bring us God's word. I know doing double time is not an easy thing on a Sunday, so we're so appreciative. Um, but uh, for those who do not know, Virgil is our founding pastor. Him and his wife, Kelsey, and their kids with a few other families in this church uh, planted GBC in 2007. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's my memory. Um, and uh, they planted out of Cornerstone Church. And um, back in 2019, like I said, we sent out the Browns to plant a new work in Northeast Portland that's now called Redemption Church. And by God's grace, that church has begun and it is thriving in the season uh, Virgil's been a good friend since 2012. Uh, I'll never forget the first time meeting Virgil. We were planning a church in Corvallis, and uh, the church no longer needed the trailer that it was using, and it just so happened to be on the Hardens' property, and you guys were so generous and said, you can just have it. But I remember meeting with Virgil and leaving and thinking, like, man, this guy has got to be like 10 years older than me, and I'm pretty sure we're the same age, but Virgil just carries a maturity that I feel like I lack. So in style, you got the Air Jordans on today. I'm in my Sperry's loafers. What am I doing? So anyways, Virgil's great in so many amazing ways. I've uh, just learned a lot from him as a brother and a friend. Uh, just a good man. So I'm, I'm so excited for him to be with us tonight. So Virgil, if you want to come on up, uh, I'm going to pray for him for our time together. And I'm going to pray for redemption. He's going to share about redemption and he's going to preach God's word to us from Matthew chapter 6. Lord, we uh, come to you tonight just thankful for your word that you have not left us to wonder what you're like, what we're called to do in this place. Lord, we pray for Virgil and Kelsey and the kids for redemption, this work that you've begun. We pray, God, in this season uh, that they would thrive, that you cause them to flourish, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of unwanted circumstances, Lord. I pray that they would trust in your goodness, in your providence. Uh, Lord, in your grace, in your heart for the city of Portland. Uh, we thank you that you've planted them there. We're excited, God, to see in the years ahead just the renewal kind of work that you do in people's lives. I also pray that you'd fill them with your spirit, Lord, as he preaches to us. Uh, would you make our hearts receptive to what you want to say to us tonight? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. GBC, what's up? What's up? So good to be with you. Man, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, really looking forward to it. Um, always praying for this church, love this church, and uh, really grateful for uh, the leadership that God's placed here. Uh, Josh Howarth as your pastor, of course, the great elders that you have, all the deacons, and of course, the members uh, who are also important to leading and guiding this congregation. Um, really, really thankful uh, for God's work in and through uh, all of you, and very thankful for the encouragement that this congregation has been to me and to our new church, Redemption Church. Uh, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Um, and thanks for just cheering us on and uh, um, offering words of encouragement. All the emails and text messages mean, uh, mean a lot. Uh, as just said, um, our church recently celebrated its first anniversary. We praise God for that. That happened in 
uh, September, and uh, the Lord's been so faithful um, over the last year to be building his church. I'll try and make my update quick so we can get into the sermon. I think most of you know that the Lord provided us with a building uh, that's paid off that we own, so praise God for that. Uh, It was a building that needed a lot of work, and the Lord provided the resources needed to do all of that work, so we are enjoying that. It was a tiring season, for sure. The spring and summer, uh, for me and for leaders in our church, were really, really busy, but we're happy with the outcome and very thankful uh, to have a place to to gather um, on Sundays and and a place that really facilitates ministry uh, throughout the week. Uh, Super happy with the discipleship that's taking place in the church. We've got a women's ministry that's getting off the ground. Uh, The women's Bible studies have been encouraging and really equipping for for women in our church. Um, We had to do a lot of things in an unconventional way, just like GBC, over the last year. So we did some virtual things, uh, virtual Bible studies. Uh, We did this program called Christianity Explored, which uh, creates a safe space for irreligious people to explore Christianity, to explore their their own spirituality, and we did all of that online, fully online, and got a pretty good response, and we're really happy with the engagement from that. As a result, some of those people have come to visit uh, Redemption Church, praise God for that. Uh, There are some, some people that God's brought to faith also since we've started way more than we anticipated. Uh, we didn't know what to expect when we were opening a church right in the middle of COVID. But again, the Lord has been really, really uh, faithful. We have prayer meetings that are well attended and lots of informal discipleship happens in one-on-one settings and in small groups. So we're grateful for, we're grateful for that too. Uh, recently, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I introduced two elder candidates to our congregation, and that's a big step for us. So uh, to be at the one-year point and to have two qualified elder candidates is, is a real joy for me. It'll be a blessing to the church and a help for me also uh, in our growing church, and uh, those guys should be confirmed as elders in January of next year. And we've got a lot of deacon roles that we want to fill as well. We're actively looking also to hire a part-time Uh, pastoral assistant for student ministries. So we've got this growing group of teenagers in our church and no one to lead them. The parents are really cool because we're a church plant. They know they need to be patient. Uh, But they tap me on the shoulder every now and then asking about when we're going to start that youth group. So you can be praying for us about that. Pray that God would help us identify the right person to lead uh, student ministries for our church, sometimes in a church plant uh, like ours, um, not having a youth group becomes a real pain point. So you start to repel people with teenagers because they're really looking for that ministry uh, because it's so critical for their kids. So, so do be praying uh, for the launch of student ministries. Community outreach has been pretty sweet. We've got a partnership going with the Portland Rescue Mission. Uh, just yesterday, we were going door to door in the neighborhood around the church, collecting coats and blankets and informing people of a coat and blanket drive that we're doing with the Portland Rescue Mission. That's pretty sweet. We've got a couple guys in our church. One guy works for them. The other guy spends just a lot of his time volunteering with them. And that's been a nice bridge for us into serving um, vulnerable populations in the city of Portland. Additionally, I think some of you know this, we are right across the street from an elementary school called Scott Elementary School. It's a very high-need school. Uh, and the Lord has opened a door for us to provide... Uh, some benevolence help to 
families that are a part of that school, but more than that, to be light to the teachers and the, the, the leadership of that school. So do be praying that the Lord would open a door for the gospel, that we would be able to share our hope in Jesus Christ with people as well as alleviate some of their suffering. All right, that's the church. Happy to talk more with you about the church uh, after the, the service. Quick family update. Uh, maybe one of my chief anxieties in leaving Gresham Bible and going into Portland to plant Redemption Church was thinking about my kids, especially my, my eldest, Olive. Born and raised in GBC, all of her favorite people in the world were in GBC. This is the best place on earth to her, and I was taking her away from this place. And so Kelsey and I were praying really hard, saying, God, uh, please provide community for her, provide friends, provide a school that she loves, provide kids in the neighborhood that she can connect with. And the Lord has answered all of those prayers. He's done that for Olive, he's done that for Lincoln, he's done that for Coco and for Georgia, and we're so very thankful for that. Uh, so again, thank you for praying. My family's doing well. We've been in the city now for a couple of years, and it is really starting to feel like we're settled there, and it's starting to feel like home. All right, if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. One of the saddest stories in the Bible is the story of Demas. Demas was a close companion of the Apostle Paul. He was widely known in the churches as a co-worker along with Luke and Paul and others. Uh, this man Demas got to live the dream. Uh, he was a part of a pioneering missionary team. Uh, together, they labored to plant new churches uh, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, uh, to tell the gospel to unbelievers, and to see the power of God on display in spectacular ways. But at the worst possible moment for the Apostle Paul, Demas traded hard but rich, rewarding, eternally significant work. He traded all of that for the comfort and pleasure that's offered by the world. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul wrote, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We don't know all the details about his desertion. Maybe it was for a more uh, secure vocation. The gospel work was kind of risky. Or, or maybe because Christian workers were despised in the world, he wanted to do something uh, that would win the esteem of his neighbors. It's also possible that Demas had a certain skill set and could do quite well for himself outside of ministry. Whatever the case, Demas made a terrible bargain. He chose the temporary benefits of the world over the eternal rewards of heaven. That temptation can be strong. And sadly, the tragedy that occurred with Demas still happens today. The big idea of my sermon is that we should resist the allure of riches and embrace the priority of the kingdom. We don't live in a neutral world. All the time, things are pulling at us one way or another. 
all the time, the world is casting its vision to us. It's a vision of comfort. It's a vision of happiness in material possessions. It's a vision of security in wealth. Our text, though, offers us an alternative vision, a vision for life in the kingdom of God, a life of greater significance, a life of lasting joy. The sermon outline this evening has two points. Point number one, don't love money. We're going to deal with that in verses 19 to 24. And point number two, don't worry about money. We'll deal with that in verses 25 through 34. Now, those two points are propped up by the promises that Jesus makes to us. Jesus makes promises so that we don't love money and so that we don't worry about money. And those promises that Jesus makes about money and material possessions, those promises propel us into living by faith, living on mission for him. We start now with point number one, don't love money. Look at verses 19 to 21 of Matthew 6. Don't store up treasure, treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We'll stop there. The treasures on earth that Jesus envisioned here are things like fine garments made by the hands of a skilled seamstress, using the very best fabric, tailored just for you, clothing so nice that you only wear it on special occasions. So, so, so you, you store it away uh, with plans of preserving it for the future. And when that fateful day comes to take it out of storage and to wear it to some formal event, you discover that it has been eaten by moths. And Jesus also envisioned other goods, goods made of metal that are destroyed by rust, and treasures like pearls, gold, and perfume that are lost to thieves. Earthly treasures lack durability. So Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That statement is very much like, do not labor for bread that perishes. Elsewhere, the Bible says, if you don't work, then you don't eat. So we should labor for bread that perishes. And in the same way, regarding earthly treasure, Proverbs tells us precious Treasure and oil are in the dwelling of a wise person, but a fool consumes them. So Jesus here in our text must not be saying, don't have nice things. No, no, Jesus is saying that we should not make our things our treasure. We should not treasure earthly treasure. Instead, Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. These treasures are free from decay and destruction. Elsewhere, the Bible speaks of our rewards in heaven. We will have, for example, work and responsibility without the weakness of fatigue. 
We will have friendships in heaven that are free forever from conflict. We will have community with perfect harmony and love. Uh, We will have life to the full without grief or sadness and the fullness of joy that comes from being in the presence of Jesus Christ. Great treasure awaits you in eternity. Heavenly treasure is durable. It will not be lost and it cannot be destroyed. So, it makes good sense to value treasure in heaven. Uh, But the issue here is larger than which treasure is best. Uh, Jesus goes on to say that the things we treasure govern our lives. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things that we value take up real estate in our minds. They tug at our hearts. They become the topic of family meetings. They become the subject of our daydreams. For example, if above all else, your dream is to build a successful business, to to own a a fabulous home on the the lake somewhere, to, to travel the globe, to bring up children who attend elite colleges, if that is what you treasure most, then you will be consumed by those ambitions. And then the values of the kingdom will get squeezed out of your life. The challenge for us is that none of those things are bad, but they must not govern our lives. But it can happen in such a subtle way. The the good desire to provide for yourself and for your family can, over time, morph into a career-centered ambition, moving on from stewardship and provision into this all-consuming drive to succeed. It's like how when you're driving and you turn your head and the car just starts to drift out of your lane, we are drawn toward whatever our hearts are fixated on. And Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven because it's smart, it's more durable, and because it anchors us in the values of the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says this, So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Paul wrote wrote, wrote this in in, um, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. There in the Bible, he instructed the rich in this world not to set their hope on riches, which are so uncertain, but to hope in God and to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. All right, so we've got Colossians 3. We've got 1 Timothy chapter 6. And those two passages teach us that we have to actively work at storing up treasure in heaven. We have to disciple ourselves into treasuring heavenly rewards. Seek the things above, the Bible says. Work to better comprehend the rewards of faithful followers of Jesus Christ. One way to do that is to make the promises of God more concrete in your life. More concrete than one day we'll fly away. No, it's got to be more than that. And the way it becomes more than that is by studying what Jesus said. 
uh, by meditating on his word, by turning those things over in your head again and again and again until you pound that truth into your heart and you can almost taste the rewards that are waiting for you when Jesus returns. Next, Jesus gave two metaphors that reinforce this point. I look now at verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Like a lamp that gives light to every room in the house, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eye is healthy, if the lamp is good, then the whole body will be full of light. That word healthy there in verse 22 has a range of meaning. It can mean single, as in undivided loyalty, or in some contexts it means generous. Uh, Either way, healthy is good because it captures the soundness of an eye that is working properly. A healthy eye takes in light and it illuminates the entire body. A bad eye does not take in light, and the whole body is full of darkness. A bad eye is the person who either divides their interest, and they try and focus on God and possessions. So they have no, no clear vision. They, they will live without a clear orientation or a clear direction. Or, or this person with a bad eye is that stingy person who is who is a selfish person and cannot really see where they're going in life. They are morally and spiritually blind. I think that's the right definition of the bad eye. That darkness is blinding and it darkens your soul. It darkens your mind. A good eye is able to see things from God's perspective, to view treasure in this world appropriately. A healthy eye frees us from attaching worth to others and to ourselves based on what we have. A sound, healthy eye illuminates our mind and gives us a godly perspective on money and material possessions. Basically, a healthy eye allows us to think about worldly treasures the way that God thinks about worldly treasure. For the Christian with vision... Money is only money. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just money. With clear sight, we are able to see that there's no security in wealth. A person's net worth is not a measure of their worth. But the person with the bad eye, that person is blinded by a love for money, and they lack vision in life. How do you know? If that's you, how do you know if you lack spiritual clarity to see? I think it's really hard to diagnose. If you were a thief, you could pretty easily discern and understand what stealing was and that stealing is wrong. What about greed? What about materialism? And part of the reason for that. <clears throat> That problem, the the challenge with discerning that problem is is that a lot of Christians don't believe they are greedy or can be greedy. For many, greed only exists in the hearts and the minds of the super rich, right? The Scrooges of this world. 
But that must not be so. Uh, The Bible warns the lowly of this world against desiring to become rich. Uh, People without money can still love money. Those with little money can still have a negative attitude about money. Even people who are generous can struggle with greed. You could give a tithe to your local church, but your attitude about the 90% that you keep can be unhealthy. I want to tell you a story about a church that tried to deal with a problem of greed. In 1635, the elders of First Congregational Church of Boston disciplined Robert Cain for the sin of greed. The elders knew that other sins were more obvious, but recognized that greed posed a serious threat to the spiritual health of their church. So they decided, as a congregation, to put parameters in place that would define greed. It was something the whole church agreed to. They agreed that at that time, in that place, this is what greed looks like. Robert Kane was a merchant who found good success in Boston. His wealth grew and grew and grew quickly. So there was an investigation, and one of the elders of the church determined that he was greedy. He was earning a 6% profit when it had been decided upon that the maximum profit should be 4%, and he was disciplined by his church. Now, I understand that it is likely impossible and altogether unwise for us to try and create such a policy here in this day. There are just way too many variables. However, We ought to applaud this congregation and their members for the way that they were willing to bring others into their financial lives. Jesus talked a lot about money, uh, more than heaven or hell combined. I'm certain you've heard that quote before. But Christians don't like talking about money, but we must. This is one of the ways that we can resist drifting into worldliness. Are you willing to give away power by making yourself accountable to a small group of Christians, opening your books and telling them about your money? Uh, This is something I started doing with a couple of brothers, just sharing family budgets, talking about what I give, uh, talking about debt, talking about savings, and it's all for good. It's not been like this fault-finding Uh, exploration. Uh, Once we spent some time together talking about how one brother could pay down some debt. Another time we spent time together uh, talking about how another brother could save more. So our meetings aren't always about how much more money can you give away, but really financial health, uh, having other people's eyes on your money. And I think it's really good. Uh, The second metaphor works like the first. There are two visions, and Jesus now says there are two masters. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, so you can have two jobs, right? You can be a student, and you can work part-time at the library. You can divide your energy and your attention and your time But that's very different than having two masters. Uh, Having a master implies that you're a slave. 
Not just someone who can punch in and punch out. A true servant-master relationship requires strong loyalty. The language of being devoted to one and despising the other is absolute, but we should not take it absolutely. We don't have to hate material possessions in order to love God. Being devoted to one and despising the other is a way of saying that in a contest, one will be strongly preferred over the other. Our loyalties may not be known immediately, but they will become obvious when we are called to repentance or when we are challenged to grow in generosity. Uh, This is illustrated later by an encounter that Jesus has in Matthew's gospel uh, with a rich young man. Uh, This man asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus talked with him about, uh, about obeying the word of God, and the young man replied, I've been doing that from my childhood. Then Jesus pressed him on his allegiance to reveal what was actually governing his life. Uh, so he told this, this rich young man, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all of your possessions and give that money away to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the Bible says, when the young man heard this, he went away in sorrow because he had great wealth. His master was revealed. What we do with our money and material possessions is a key indicator of the condition of our hearts. How you manage your money reveals a lot about where your loyalties lie. And this is why Christian generosity is very important. Your giving matters. Not not merely because you're giving funds God's purposes in and through Gresham Bible Church, but because your giving transfers your heart from your small empire to God's big kingdom. This happens when you give at a level that impacts your lifestyle. Giving that you feel. Giving that impacts how you vacation or how often you vacation. Uh, where you dine out and how often you dine out, what you drive, how you dress, uh, the amount that you're able to put away for retirement, and the list goes on and on. That kind of generosity helps us remain loyal to Christ, and it shows that our greatest treasure in this life is Jesus. Though treasures in heaven matter, our motivation for giving is not just so that God will give things back to us. Uh, And the chief impulse for our giving is not just meeting needs, though benevolence and mercy matter. The controlling influence in our generosity is the generosity of Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich." When we are generous, it shows that we are like our Savior, Jesus, uh, the one who emptied himself, uh, who assumed the form of a servant, who took on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus spent himself entirely. The sacrifice of his life on the cross 
in our place and for our sins and his resurrection from the grave. It saved us from condemnation and it has freed us from a life of materialism. We no longer live according to the ways of this world. We have a new master who gives us new appetites and new desires that cause us to forsake a love of money and to pursue real lasting treasure in heaven. That is a gift, that new life. It is a gift that is received by faith. If this faith that I'm talking about is not yours, and you would like to know more about how you can have that kind of fulfillment in Jesus Christ, a fulfillment so deep that it would cause you to let go of this world's possessions, then I know that my brother Josh would be delighted to speak with you about that following the service in the lobby. Uh, Point number one was don't love money. A love of money squeezes out the priorities of the kingdom. And point number two is don't worry about money. Look now at verse 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or... What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This section begins with that word, therefore, and it points us back to what came before. Because money and material possessions are so uncertain, because there is greater treasure that awaits us in heaven, therefore, don't worry about the essentials of your life. In the same way that making money, your master squeezes out the priorities of the kingdom in that way, obsessing about your basic material needs can also squeeze out the priorities of the kingdom. Loving money harms us, and worrying about money harms us. This command, do not worry, can be, misunder- can be misunderstood. Uh, some take it to mean that Christians can be careless, not thinking about tomorrow, not particularly concerned about much going on today, Uh, Maybe they've used the hope of heaven to escape responsibilities in this life. Others here do not worry, and uh, they're more responsible. And and, and so they think that their concern for their family and work and God's work in the world is somehow ungodly, and they go on to worry about their worry. And then there are others who here do not worry, 
and they take it to mean that the strain they feel from their current struggles in life ought not to affect in the way that it does. But here, Jesus is not telling us to be careless, nor is he rebuking the responsible people or telling people under pressure that they just need to get over it. No, no, the Bible is concerned about worry that harms. Uh, This is dealt with in the 13th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, There, Jesus explained a parable of a sower. He said there was a sower who sowed seed, and that seed is the word of God. And in one scenario, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. They squeeze out the priorities of the kingdom, making it unfruitful. Worry that harms is worry that undermines God's purposes for our lives. It is a distrust that is opposed to faith. Now, Jesus gives us three reasons why we should not worry. First, he says, don't worry because God gave you life. Uh, This is an argument that says because God has done the greater thing, of course, he will do the lesser thing. Like he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And Jesus made his argument by noting that God gave the birds life. He created the environment that causes grass to grow. The birds don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then look at this well-dressed grass of the field. These wildflowers are, are way better dressed than Solomon at his height. And if that's how God clothes the birds of the field and feeds, or the grass of the field and feeds the, the birds of the air, won't he do so much more for you? You are the pinnacle of God's creation. You need not worry. Second, Jesus tells us not to worry because we're not in control. Verse 27 Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? What does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about future needs, but it does mean that the future is in God's hands. You are not Lord of the future. God alone is sovereign. This is not intended to make us careless, but it should make us more carefree. Uh, The Christian should be responsible, but also recognize that Jesus is on the throne. So we work hard and we plan wisely and we rest in God's sovereign care. Third, and Jesus tells us not to worry, because worry keeps us from the joyful pursuit of righteousness and the risky exploits of life in the kingdom of God. Instead of worrying, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Church, these verses call out to us. Like when Bilbo Baggins was greeted by Gandalf and invited to go on an adventure. We are not to be people who only think about life in the Shire, 
who are only concerned about things that pertain to this life. There are matters of greater significance before us, and that kingdom business should govern our lives. Seeking first God's kingdom means desiring, above all, to participate in spreading good news about the saving reign of Jesus Christ. It is a life that is geared towards storing up treasure in heaven. Seeking his righteousness is the pursuit of the surpassing righteousness that Jesus already laid out in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. It is an inside-out, upside-down way of living. It's righteousness that's not only about what you do, but who you are. And Jesus says in our text, give your wholehearted devotion to those things, to the kingdom and to righteousness, and your heavenly Father will provide all that you need. In the earlier point of our sermon, we learned that heavenly treasure is durable. And here Jesus is telling us that the one who provides it is dependable. A life governed by the values of the kingdom will not leave you disappointed or destitute. Here Jesus gives us a promise that is intended to make us go all in on the gospel of Christ. That trust in God for provision is not just about our comfort and it's not just about our peace of mind. That trust is a thrust into risk-taking exploits in the kingdom of God. Now you might be wondering, where's that risk-taking stuff coming from? I'm calling it risky because that's how Jesus has characterized it. Already in chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, he describes this risky Christ-following life. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Oh no. This is the same righteousness that Jesus tells us to seek first in Matthew chapter 6 when he tells us not to worry. This righteousness business is risky business. It is, it is kingdom business that could lead to you being persecuted. What Jesus is doing here in our text at this point in his sermon is equipping us to be the kind of people who will live boldly and fearlessly for God. Uh, the kind of people who can rejoice and be glad when persecution comes because we know, right? Because we're fully persuaded, because we are convinced that great rewards await us in heaven. The Lord's promises give us assurance, and the Lord's promises give us courage to take bold steps of obedience. And further courage is given the closing verse of our text. Jesus tells us not to worry about tomorrow's trouble, sufficient for today is its own evil. Tomorrow's misfortune may never happen, but should it come, it will be met with new mercies. God supplies what we need when we need it. 
We don't have to see and feel all of the ways that God will be meeting our future needs. We walk by faith and not by sight. I have to tell you, that's not always easy to do. A couple of years ago, I spent a good number of days meditating on Matthew chapter 6. Uh, the leading from the Spirit to launch out and start a new church in Portland was undeniable, but I had plenty of anxiety about doing that. One day I had great faith, and the next day I had fainting faith. One week I was thrilled by all of the possibilities, and the next week I was afraid. I doubted God a lot. What feels good to me is being able to predict what will come. And maybe a better way of saying that is feeling like I'm in control of what's happening. Um, but the Lord wanted to teach me to live by faith. When the decision was made to plant Redemption Church, we had no people, we had no committed financial support, and we had no place to meet, but I knew that God was leading me. And as we trusted God, he began to open doors. First with a church planting network, a second with Henson Baptist Church, and then supporters came on board at just the right time, and people I'd never met before in the city of Portland heard about this new church starting, and they wanted to join our core team, and you know the rest. That process was exhilarating, and it was scary, but it was so worthwhile for the lives that have been changed and for the change that has also occurred in my own life. I tell people often that I think I needed Redemption Church more than anyone else needed Redemption Church. The Lord is so faithful, and I've learned dependence through this process. For most of us, learning dependence doesn't mean launching out to plant a new church. But for all of us, it does mean not allowing comfort and pain avoidance to govern our lives. Instead, our lives should be governed by the, by the priorities of the kingdom of God. And when we live in that way, God promises to give us heavenly rewards. He promises to provide all that we need. Those assurances are given so that you and I will go all in on the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the sweet promises that we have in your word. Father, we pray that you would uh, cause these truths to be alive and active in our lives. Lord, Lord, we pray that you would give us a greater experience uh, of your grace as we step out on faith in various ways, uh, trusting you, uh, Lord, in maybe, maybe some thrilling ways, maybe, Lord, in some scary ways. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in that. And God, find, uh, Lord, that your word is true. Uh, God, God, find that you are indeed faithful. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.